Good morning. It's good to see you. So I love, love the little redhead. She didn't even get out of the room before she's got it in her mouth. So good. And um, you know, what's more impressive is that they all stayed in the chair. Did anyone notice that? My kids would not do that. They'd be running around that room. Well, so we're, we're finishing up our series on the Holy Spirit. And today we're talking about the idea the Holy Spirit can be grieved or he can be quenched. And I thought about that video when I was thinking about our subject for today because, you know, we all know that two marshmallows is better than one, right? I mean, more of something, when it's a good thing, more of it is better. But often getting past the obstacles to getting more can be really difficult. And that's really what we're looking at as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit today. We're looking at the reality that there is an experience of the Holy Spirit that's available to us, his empowering work that we've talked about, his filling work, his leading work, uh, you know, his purifying work, that there's an experience of, of the Spirit to be had that is strong and, and really, you know, um, deep. But often we fail to experience that because overcoming the obstacles to getting that, if you'll excuse the metaphor, the two marshmallow experience of the Holy Spirit's work can be really hard. You know, in this case, it's the kids having to wait patiently for something that's sitting right in front of them and it's so difficult. But for you and I, it might be overcoming certain patterns of sin or overcoming certain attitudes or thoughts or patterns in our life that prevent us from experiencing more of the Spirit's work. You know, one of the realities is that the scriptures teach us is that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've come to faith in Christ, that you are indwelt by the Spirit, right, church? Yeah, that you have the Spirit of God. But some of us then mistake that for the reality that we, would, we assume we all experience the same type of work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That having the indwelling presence of the Spirit is a guarantee of experiencing his movement in power. But the reality is that's not true. One of the things the scriptures testify to is that we experience greater or lesser movement or work of the Holy Spirit based upon the choices that we make that we experience more or less of the Spirit's work based upon the choices that we make. And that's what we're looking at today as we're kind of closing up shop on this series of the Holy Spirit and his work as we look at the reality that the Scriptures teach us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit and that we can quench the work of the Holy Spirit. We find those two phrases in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. We find that phrase, do not, it's a command, do not grieve the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. And then we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, the other phrase that we're looking at today, which is this, is do not quench the work of the Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at those, the thing that I want you to understand is that there is a, an experience, a two marshmallow experience, if you will, uh, of the Spirit's work that is available to you but at least in part, that is dependent upon the choices that you and I make as to whether or not we'll experience that. Right, does that make sense? You with me? Okay, so let's look together. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 to start with. And as you turn there, let me do a little bit of definitional work for us. When we understand what we mean when we say those terms, grieve and quench, the two terms that we're going to find today are going to be kind of central to the idea when we hear the idea that the Holy Spirit can be grieved, when we see that term, the term just literally means, uh, it means to be deeply sorrowed, to be deeply sorrowed. So, and I, I love that Paul, uh, inspired by God, chooses to use this terminology because it reinforces an idea for us. And the idea, it takes us all the way back to week one of our series on the Holy Spirit. When we talked about the fact that the Spirit is not just, is not just um, sort of a, 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 uh, an ethereal 
you know, thing kind of moving through the air, but that the Spirit is personal, that the Spirit is a person. So God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And when we say that they're personal, we mean that that means that they're relational, so that the Spirit is relational. And so when we hear the Spirit can be grieved, that's a relational idea. What Paul is telling us is that we can bring sorrow to the Spirit of God. That, that reminds us that the Spirit is personal. Or if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, as Paul is closing up shop, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, I should say, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, as Paul is closing up shop on this letter to the Corinthians, there's this little closing line that we always kind of read past because it seems just like the kind of thing you say at the end of a letter. When Paul says, says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's a good thing to wish upon someone, right? To bless them with. May, may, God, may Jesus' grace be upon you. Then he says, and may the love of God be yours. May you know the love of God. And then he says the third thing, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Same idea as not that he's saying you can grieve the Holy Spirit, but he's teaching us that the Spirit is relational in nature, that you were saved in part for a relationship with the Spirit of God, for a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, living-breathing relationship with God's Spirit. Otherwise, that term, the fellowship of the Spirit, has no meaning if you don't, you follow that? It doesn't have any meaning if we don't think that what he's saying there is, Corinthians, I want you to have a, an ongoing relational fellowship with the Spirit of God. I'm wishing that for you, right? So then let's turn our attention to the second term, which is this idea of quenching. And when we hear that term, if when we hear grieving, what we're meant to understand, what the term literally means, is that we can cause deep sorrow to the Spirit. Then when we see the term quenching, what we're meant to understand is the idea there is putting out a flame. It's like the idea of, you know, if you've got a candle and you lick your fingers and you snuff it out with your fingers, right? The idea of quenching is that we would, that we would, uh, suffocate the, the oxygen of the flame of the Holy Spirit, right? The idea being that it's possible for you and I, if we can quench the Spirit of God, it means we can inhibit his work in our lives. That it's possible for us, for him to desire to move and to do something and that us by our actions can, can inhibit that work. We can cause it to happen to greater or lesser degrees. Now again, this is something we see throughout the scriptures. There's a pretty big distinction between the way we see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, we see characters like Saul, who's the king of Israel. And God becomes grieved that he made Saul king because of Saul's choices, that Saul does foolish things as the king. And as a result, it says that the Spirit of God was removed from Saul, that Saul had the Spirit of God and then it was removed from him. Now, in the New Testament, we find something very different, and we're comforted by this, the reality that because we have come to God in Christ, the Spirit can never be removed from us, that once the Spirit indwells us, he does not leave us, but... The same idea of quenching or grieving the Spirit carries forward from the Old Testament into the New, and under the New Covenant, where we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, what we do learn is while the Spirit is never removed from us, the fact is we can limit the Spirit's work through us and our experience of that work. That's an important reality for us to wrestle with and grasp because God has designed you for fellowship with the Spirit, you and I. He's designed us for his empowering work, his filling work, his purifying work, his leading work, his revealing work to be done. So that if I find myself at different points in life thinking, well, okay, why am I not being led? Why am I not sensing the Spirit's leading? 
Or why am I not sensing the conviction of the Spirit while I'm moving forward into sin? Or why am I not experiencing this aspect of the Spirit's work or His empowerment as I go to evangelize? Why, is, why does that seem to be lacking from my life? One of the questions we should ask in that moment is, is there a way by which I might be grieving or quenching the work of the Spirit? And so what I want us to do today is just examine those two things. As we look, we're gonna, you know, throughout this series, we've been just like every Sunday, it's been like scripture gymnastics, right? I mean, I've had you in like 12 passages, been all over the place. We're just gonna look at two today. Somebody say amen to that. Just two. You should like all 12. Wait a minute, what? No, I'm just kidding. Two is good. We'll just kind of land in these two. We'll look at them. So we're gonna look at Ephesians chapter four, 1 Thessalonians chapter five, and see what, what the scriptures tell us when they tell us that we can grieve or quench the work of the Spirit. So let's see what, let's answer those two questions. And so question number one is the two points of the sermon today. Question number one, what grieves the Spirit? Question number two, what quenches the Spirit? So look with me at Ephesians chapter four. And when we ask that question, what grieves the Holy Spirit? The broadest answer is sin, right? Y'all, y'all understand that. The broadest answer is just sin. Any sin in our life grieves the Spirit because he is the Holy Spirit. He desires holiness and purity among his people. So my sin grieves him. But that's a little bit of an unhelpful answer. It's a right category. It's a right answer. But it's a little bit unhelpful. If I say to you, sin grieves the Holy Spirit, go and be warm and well-filled. You know, see you later, have a great day. You think, well, that, that didn't help me kind of drill down into this at all to understand how I might behave differently, live differently, think differently so that I might not then grieve the Spirit, all right? So let's, let's see what Ephesians chapter four tells us about what grieves the Spirit particularly. So Ephesians chapter four, beginning verse 25, says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So I wanna point out something really important before we even look at that list of things. Did you notice in chapter four, verse 30, when he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were what? Anyone remember the word? Sealed. So what is he doing there? He's reminding us the Spirit has sealed us. He is not going to leave us in spite of the fact that we might grieve him. And that's an important thing to remember because if I move forward in my efforts to not grieve the Spirit under the assumption that if I grieve him, to a certain degree, he would leave me, that that sealing work that he has done would become, would become undone, then I will operate out of fear rather than out of faith and confidence. And the pathway of fear is not gonna help you not grieve the Holy Spirit. But the pathway of faith in what he has done and a right awe and reverence towards God, which we would categorize as fear, a certain type of fear, but not the fear that you would lose relationship with him, the fear that he is big and grand and holy and good, that we would be in awe And astounded by that, that type of fear is helpful and useful, but not this fear that we might lose relationship with God. That's unhelpful. So when we see that, Paul is reinforcing something there for us, a good reminder. 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed and will continue to be sealed. But now let's look at what we saw in that passage. Almost every one of the things that we saw in there, I don't know if you caught the theme as you went through, and it's a theme through all of the book of Ephesians, in fact. The theme of the things, I would argue, that grieve the Spirit that we saw there, it's not just that verse 29, which precedes verse 30, where he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Don't let any kinds of words be spoken by you that are crass or impure or that break others down. He's not just saying that's what grieves the Spirit. He's saying everything, because verse 30 is the center of this passage, everything before and after it really are things that grieve the Spirit. And the the unifying theme of all of those things that grieve the Spirit in this passage are things that, that disrupt the unity of the body of Christ. Things that cause a rupture to the unity of the body of Christ. Did you notice it? So don't don't lie to one another. That causes a fracture in the body of Christ. Don't steal. Don't steal. Stop stealing. In fact, work hard so you have something to give to others. Don't hold on to unforgiveness, but forgive as you were forgiven in Christ Jesus. Don't gossip or slander or say things about one another that don't honor one another. Don't don't let those words even escape your mouth. Guard your mouth so that you wouldn't say or speak those things. All of the things Paul is pointing to are things that disrupt the unity of the body. And we might think to ourselves, when I read this list, if I'm honest, and you can see if, if this is where your head goes, of all the things, of all the sins that God could point us to, when he's going to talk about grieving the spirit, which is a relatively infrequent term in the scriptures. This is not a term we find in every book of the Bible where you go, oh, well, this grieves him and this grieves him and this grieves him and this grieves him. It only comes up a handful of times. And so in one of these handful of times where we're told that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, the list of sins that he lists here, when I read them at first glance, I think to myself, these seem like secondary kinds of sins. I mean, a little bit of gossip, a little bit of half-truth, Really? I mean, we're not talking about murder here, right? We're not talking about adultery here. We're not talking about, I mean, you know, the stuff that I would consider like, you know what I think would really grieve the spirit is some of these other big boys over here. But isn't it telling to us that in the moment, one of the few times that he's gonna say this grieves the spirit, the thing he's gonna talk about is things that disrupt the unity of the body. And that's a correction for me and perhaps for you if you might think these seem like lesser kinds of sins. What he's saying is this grieves the spirit of God because it fractures the unity of the body. Now, let's ask a second question that sort of, that that begs this question. Why would the spirit be so grieved by sins that cause disunity? Like why would that be such an important thing to him? The answer to that question I think is in John 17 because the Holy Spirit has been sent in part to answer from God to answer the prayer of Jesus to God the Father in John 17 when he prayed for the unity of the body. And the Spirit has come to fulfill or bring about the answer to that prayer. So look at what Jesus says in John 17 when he's praying. He says, uh, this is John 17, verse 20 to 23. Jesus praying, says, I, I don't ask, I do not ask for these only, but for also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So do you see that Jesus is including us in this prayer? He's not saying, I'm not just praying for my disciples who are standing right here in front of me. I'm praying, Father, for everyone who will come to believe in me through the word that they will speak into the world. Would that include us? It does, right. So this is about us. And then he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Okay, now that is so rich. There's so much we can unpack, but let's just identify the most obvious thing, which is what Jesus has just prayed for you and I, is that we would be one, united under him, and that that oneness, that unity that we have of heart and mind, testifies to two things according to this passage. One, that Jesus was actually sent by the Father, that he is the one who can save. He has been sent from heaven so that people may have eternal life. That's what he says. If people are gonna believe that, my people are gonna need to be unified. And then the second thing that it testifies to, the unity of the body, the second thing it testifies to is not just that Jesus was sent from God, but also that God the Father loves us. It bears witness to that reality. Now do you begin to see why this is such a deeply important thing to the Spirit and why it grieves him when we are not united in mind and heart under Christ? Not united in right belief, not united in right mission, not united in our desire to see his kingdom come. Do you, church, do you see? Because Jesus has declared, my mission goes forward in the world and my people are unified, so Spirit, come and bring about the answer to that prayer so it grieves the Spirit when I, through my actions, bring disunity to the body. This is a big deal to God. This is no small thing. So my little words of gossip, my critical spirit, my slip of the tongue, my half-truth to maintain my reputation, Those things are not small. They damage the body and they grieve the spirit. So it's important that we understand that and we not discount those things as lesser. Now, only the spirit, here's here's why I think Jesus sees this so paramount in John 17. It's because only the spirit of God can take a, a group of people that are as difficult and as different as Christians are and make them one. Right, the world doesn't need a lot of help believing people would compete against one another or fight against one another. It doesn't take a belief. You know what I think it takes to get people to fight is God. But you know what, I th- what the world will stand up and take notice to is when people are unified along the lines of coming under Christ. When that happens, then the world takes notice because it testifies to something powerful taking place because people as difficult and as different as the body of Christ coming together testifies something big must be at work in them to allow that or cause that to happen. You with me? Look, let's just like get down to brass tacks, okay? This is why it's such a big deal. If I can just point to an, an example of this. This is why it is such a big deal that there is really a fracture between black Christians and white Christians in the place where we live. This is not a small thing. It grieves the heart of God. It grieves the heart of God, the division between black Christians and white Christians in our region, in our area. And there's so much history, and I know I'm new to the area, I'm learning a lot. I know there's so much history behind that. But can I say that I think as those of us who are white, which is a lot of us, that we need to own the fact that we have a greater responsibility for that fracture. We have the greatest amount of responsibility for that fracture. And you may disagree with me, but here's why I think we do. Because we have culturally held the position of power in this area. 
We have culturally been defensive when we've been approached about ways that we have reinforced, intentionally or unintentionally, injustices against our brothers and sisters. We have chosen again and again to ignore, to not listen, to consider ourselves, if we're really honest, I think, to consider ourselves superior, better, more well-informed, more accurate, perhaps. All of this leads to a fracture in the unity of the body, this and many other things. And until we begin to own that, that fracture will continue to exist. And if that fracture continues to exist, do you see that it grieves the spirit of God because it hinders the unity of the body and that hinders the mission of Jesus and he won't have it. He won't have it. When we grieve him, we experience less of his movement through us, less of his empowerment, less of his, less, of, less sensitivity and tenderheartedness to his leading. We have to ask ourselves, where am I participating in creating disunity, right? And perhaps, you know, that's one example, but it may be as simple as you spoke a word this week about somebody else in this church that was not kind. It was slanderous, it was gossip. Anything that brings disunity to the body grieves the spirit and effectively limits his work now let me say that in a positive sense. Let's, let's flip that around. When I actively pursue the unity of the body, the spirit is pleased and he moves in power. When we want his powerful work through us, when we want to be sensitive to him, seek the unity of the body. Seek the unity of the body. So some examination questions that might help us, okay? I've been asking myself these. So how am I speaking about other members of the body? How am I speaking about other members of the body? Do I gossip or do I build up with my words? And let me encourage you, don't aim for the lowest bar. Don't just get over the bar of non-gossip, okay? That's a good one. Get over the bar of non-gossip, jump over that bar. But let's raise that bar and let's talk about building up with our words that it may benefit those who listen. That's what Ephesians 4.29 just told us. As is appropriate in our context. Second question, what is the condition of my heart towards the body of Christ? What is the condition of my heart towards the body of Christ? And let's really, let's talk, in, and let's talk very specifically here because it's very easy to say in a general way, oh, I love my fellow Christians. I love the body of Christ. When we're thinking about our brothers and sisters overseas enduring persecution and going through difficulty and they live thousands of miles away from us, yes, I love the body. But the true expression of whether or not we actually love the body, the bride of Christ, is whether or not we love the other members of our local church. Because they're the ones that we're living with day in, day out. And the question is, do we love them? It's not enough to just not gossip. It's not enough to just be um, not in animosity towards the body. The condition of my heart towards the church, do I love the bride of Christ? Do you know that Jesus adores his bride? He loves her. He's purchased her with his blood. He is purifying her, sees her as she will be, dressed in garments of white on his wedding day to her when he returns and establishes all things and makes them new. He will marry his bride, the church, once and for all. She will be his. He will throw the best wedding feast that has ever been thrown and we will be part of that. He loves his bride and it angers him when someone works against his bride. He does not put up with it. And when we, as members of that bride, 
cause disunity or do not have the same affection for the church, which is the bride of Christ, that Christ has for it himself, then we are coming up short of what he desires for us in our attitude towards the church. He invites you to love the church. And look, let me say, sometimes that's hard, okay? Sometimes that's hard. There is an error that, I'm 42 now, to some of you that's old, to some of you it's young, okay? So wherever that falls for you, the older I get in being a pastor, the longer I do it, the more I look back at some coming behind me, and I, and I want to, if I can, graciously give this instruction, because I see them again and again, belittle other aspects or other parts of the church and speak in a snarky way about them as if they have captured what the church truly should be. So they talk about a church that's maybe filled with older members and they're young and they're like, they just don't get it. They're steeped in their dead traditions. Or they speak about those who are of a, you know, a, a different part of the country or a different way of thinking and they just, they think they found a key somehow that is wiser and better and truer than what came before them. And those of you who are a little older recognize the silliness of that. Probably, you've been around the block a few times, more than some of us, and you see that. But what I wanna say to my younger brothers in ministry is like that you're, you are disunifying the body and diminishing the bride, and Jesus is not pleased with that. Please stop. Now look, I know that there are times where we have members of our team who don't seem to help the cause through some of the things they say and do, and they even embarrass us. Because we think to ourselves, oh, please don't do that anymore. Please stop saying that. Please stop. Please stop. And here's what happens. In that moment, we're faced with a choice. This person's embarrassing. And I don't want the world to lump me in with him. So what am I going to do? I'm going to move over here and I'm going to say, isn't that guy ridiculous? So that the world approves of me. Friends, the approval of the world is not worth the disunity of the body. Because as much as it might be embarrassing to say, I know this guy's not helping the team, but he's a brother. He's the crazy uncle that everyone's like, oh man, it would be easier if he didn't show up for Thanksgiving dinner, okay? Like this would be, he gets drunk and dances on the table and it's really awkward, right? <laughs> Some of you have that uncle, sorry. <laughs> Tell you about a friend of mine, I had a friend whose grandmother did that all the time. It was a story for another day. When, when we do that, so rather, it's, it's appropriate to speak in correction of a brother who is speaking in a way that doesn't help the cause of Christ. Like, that's appropriate, right? But to distance ourselves so that we're not affiliated with them is to say, I choose the world over the bride. And that's a, that's a bad choice. It's a bad choice. The last question I'd ask just goes back to that thing I pointed out, which is, do I make an, any effort to build relationships with other Christians, other members of the body who are of a different race than me? Seeing that unity across lines of race in the church is one of the most powerful demonstrations of Christ's saving power in our American context. So the Spirit loves to unify the church. When we work to this end, we can count on experiencing his empowerment, his leading, his revealing, and his gifts in increasing measure it's the two marshmallow experience of the Spirit's work. You can count on experience that if you will work for the unity of the body because he delights in it and he grieves, the Spirit grieves when we disunify the body. Let's turn our attention to the next term, quenching, quenching the Spirit. 
Now look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 22. says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. All right, so I love what John Stott says here. John Stott's a, a pastor and theologian, an older guy. And one of the things he says here is as he comes to this section of the book, what he sees, uh, and he talks about this in his commentary on First Thessalonians, is that what Paul is really doing is he's addressing what it should be like when the church gathers to worship together. Because he's saying things a little bit later in the verses that come after that, like, hey, make sure that you read this letter all together. Make sure that you greet one another with a holy kiss. Make sure that you do this, that you do that. So he's really not giving instructions for individual believers in their homes during the week as much as what we just read is instruction for us when we gather. So for us on a Sunday morning, when we gather here, what kind of experience of worship brings joy and life to the Holy Spirit and really makes room for him to move and to work? And what kind of gathering quenches the Spirit's work? What kind of gathering quenches the Spirit's work? So in Ephesians chapter four, if we were really looking at like how, how might I grieve the Spirit personally through my actions you know, in my day-to-day life, what we're looking at here is the question of how do we as a church cultivate a a, a worship gathering that invites the power of the Spirit to move among us? Or to say it in the negative, how would we go about quenching the Spirit in how we worship together? And what part might I play in doing either or? So let's look at the ingredients that are kind of given to us here. And there's four things that we see. We'll just hit each one quickly, but I think you'll find that they're really challenging. So the first phrase, verse 16, is rejoice Always, In other words, have joy in your worship. So the first answer to the question, what grieves the spirit when people gather to worship is joyless worship. Joyless worship, sorry, not grieves, quenches, I should say, quenches the spirit's work among us. We will experience less of his powerful movement if we don't come prepared to express joy in our worship. Now, by joy, don't hear some silly emotionalism, okay? Don't hear trumped up, manufactured emotion somehow as if that's what pleases God. That is not what pleases God. But do hear a serious type of joy that walks into this place determined to give thanks and and rejoice in all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. See, it would be silly if the scripture said, be happy all the time. Right, we are persecuted. We are in difficult situations and circumstances. And it is appropriate at points that we are sorrowful. But we are to, in spite of being sorrowful, we are to rejoice always. Which means when we gather in the name of Jesus, we express our joy in him. We celebrate that. We sing to it. So let me tell you the story I heard this week. If you weren't here yesterday, we um, hosted a Voice of the Martyrs conference. And I'd highly encourage you, especially if you weren't here, to connect with Voice of the Martyrs online, get their newsletter, their magazine. They, they tell stories of the persecuted church. And if you were here yesterday, you heard some of those powerful stories. And one of our elders said it well this morning as I was visiting with him. He said, 
I just couldn't help but think as I was listening to these stories that we are baby Christians compared to these people. And look, I, I don't know if we're baby Christians in every way, but we are certainly baby Christians in our theology of suffering. Because these folks are testifying to us, not only, hey, don't feel sorry for us, pray with us for those who are persecuting us. Pray with us for them. Jesus told us in John 15 that no one's greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they're gonna what? They're gonna persecute you. So we rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We consider it joy that we would endure that persecution. And what we're seeing, they told us, is more and more people coming to faith in Jesus than ever before through the persecution. So don't pray that God takes the persecution away. Wait, what did you say? Don't pray that God takes the persecution away. Pray that more people would come to Jesus as persecution increases. We had a brother share with us yesterday that in the Middle East, there are more people who have come to Christ in the last 17 years than there have been in the previous 14 centuries. And in large part, it's due to the persecution of the church. So they said, pray for us that we would persevere. Now you want to talk about, you? we know nothing of that kind of suffering. But I was, I was, I was so encouraged. One of, the, one of my takeaways from the day was, I just remember thinking to myself, Lord, I am not personally prepared for the kind of suffering I'm listening to my brothers and sisters enduring. I'm not personally prepared. And I'm not sure how to be prepared. I'm trying. But if and when this comes, and friends, we may not come under the sword of Islam as some of our brothers and sisters are, but we will certainly and are certainly being need to be prepared to come under the persecution of the sexual revolution among us, of the secularism of our culture and day and age, which is, which is fighting very hard to push people of faith to the boundaries of our society. We need to be prepared for the day that we will not be able to do certain jobs if we're gonna be faithful to Jesus. Those industries will no longer be available or open to us if we're gonna testify to the truth of Jesus. There, that day is coming I'm deeply convinced of I'm not a gloomy, naysayer kind of guy, but it seems evident that that day is coming and we need to learn from our brothers and sisters who have a rich theology of suffering. They long ago left behind the foolishness of the prosperity gospel that said when you worship Jesus, he wants you to be healthy and he wants you to, be, he wants you to have money. He wants you to be well cared for. That's what he's really about. And if you don't have that, you just don't have enough faith. And if you just Summon up enough faith, then you'll be good. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It is not true. And our brothers and sisters who are suffering persecution every day are offended by that teaching. But listen, they said, Oh, pray with us. Pray for us. Get on your knees. Be prepared. We pray for you. You want to talk about being humbled. When a guy who spent almost a year and a half in a prison for nothing he did but other than sharing the gospel and is being beaten daily by members of ISIS and he's watching God move in power and his testimony is, do you know, at first I had a really hard time with being there. I miss my family. I miss my wife. I miss my kids. I, I felt like the injustice of my situation grieved me deeply. But do you know, I started to see God move in such power that the last six months of my imprisonment were the best six months of my entire life. When that guy says, I'm praying for you, you think to yourself, oh, uh, I don't know what to do with that. They told us a story yesterday. I'm talking, I've gotten away from it, but I'm supposed to be talking about joyful worship. And 
one brother told a story yesterday of he was, works for, he's an American, he works for Voice of the Martyrs, and he was with uh, a church who had lost their pastor to persecution in northern India. And what had happened is this pastor it was a small village, rural India, and he'd won some, some fellow villagers to Christ. He, he shared the gospel, they'd responded, and they had this small little church, you know, a handful of members. And they're worshiping, his home became the church, and they're worshiping there. And one night, while he's asleep, someone comes banging the door, pastor, pastor, I need prayer. And his wife senses from the spirit, this, this is not, this is someone intending to harm us. This is not someone who really needs prayer. She says, don't come to the door. They knock, they begin to try and kick the door down. Eventually, they force the door open, and they shoot the pastor in his own home. He falls dead, and his children and wailing and his wife is grieving and, and there's a, such a commotion that people start to come, other members of the church start to come and they can't save his life because there's no medical care anywhere nearby. And so he, he dies. And for the next four weeks, this is the story that we were told, for the next four weeks, the church, they still gathered, but they gathered somewhere else because they were afraid. They were afraid. They were afraid to meet in their place of meeting because everyone knew that's where they met. And after four weeks of that, one of the brothers stood up in their meeting and said, it's not right that we continue to meet here in secrecy and hiding. We worship the King of kings and Lord of lords who is victorious over all of human history. We must return and worship in our place of worship. So they did. And that's where our friend from Voice of the Martyrs, our American brother, joined them. And he said, I stood five feet from where this pastor had been shot and died. I stood five feet from it. And the worship that filled that room and that space was so filled with joy and power, I've never experienced anything like it. Why do you think their worship was so filled with joy and so filled with power? Because they had prepared themselves and counted the cost as they came. And they were overjoyed to worship their king. Now when you think about that, does half-hearted, joyless worship when we gather, do you begin to see how that offends God? It offends him that we come in lazy manner. It offends him that we come unprepared. It offends him that we have not warmed our heart with the word of God in preparation to enter into this all-important gathering that we have each week together so that we would declare with joy, in you we rejoice always. You are king. The spirit is quenched by joyless worship. The next thing we see in the text, after rejoice always, is pray without ceasing. So from that we see that prayerless worship quenches the spirit. Not just joyless worship, but prayerless worship quenches the spirit. So this is a call specifically to come to the gathering of worship having prayed and being prepared to pray for and with others. Now look, we, we facilitate this each week, but we have people here to pray for you. Sometimes it's part of our order of worship. We, we have some time on the back and we say, hey, we're gonna pray. We've got some time here. Other times we just say, as we wrap up, there's people here to pray. So we're prepared each week for prayer, for intercessory prayer. And I think in particular, Paul has in mind here intercessory prayer. There's all kinds of prayer. But I think he's talking about, as if he's talking about the, the body gathering, then I think in particular he's talking about praying for and with one another. What are our needs? And let me just tell you, friends, I would, more than just saying, okay, we're gonna make sure that we carve out time where we're praying when we gather, I would so love to see spontaneous intercessory prayer break out among us. That we wouldn't wait for pastor to get up and say, okay, now it's time to pray. But that as we interact with one another in the, in the hall, 
in the lobby, here in the sanctuary, before and after, that as we're talking to one another and hearing a need, that we say in that moment, let me pray for you right now, let me pray. I love, when I was in seminary, I did a, a, a project. Uh, it was supposed to be written on your pastoral hero. And at first, I didn't think, I was like, I don't think I have a pastoral hero. I don't know who to write about. And then I realized that I had a pastor growing up who had pastored four generations of my family. My great-grandmother, my grandparents, my father, and myself. And I thought, that probably qualifies. And he had passed away, and I called his widow, and I interviewed her. And the thing that stood out to me from that conversation, it was really such a blessing of a conversation. It's almost 20 years ago now, and it still sticks with me. One of the things she said, we called our pastor Brother Paul. Please don't call me Brother Trent. You can just call me Trent. It's good. But we called him Brother Paul. And she said, the thing that's going to be, of all the things she said about his ministry and his life and his heart for others, she said, he was so determined to not just say he would pray for people, but to pray for them, that at any turn someone expressed a need, he would stop in that moment and go, can I pray for you now? Can I pray for you now? And that has stuck with me. I have tried to emulate that. I haven't done it perfectly. But at every turn of ministry, that's like a lasting legacy on my heart and mind from Brother Paul, that I would, that I would stop in the moment and say, let's, let's pray now. Let's, let's go before the throne in this moment. We need more of that in our midst. Don't wait, just go before God together. Let's not have prayerless worship. Let's be prepared when we come and let's pray with one another. And let me ask you too, what does your Saturday night look like? What does your, does your Saturday night reflect that what's gonna happen the next morning is the most important gathering of your week or does it look like what's gonna happen the next morning is an afterthought? Do you prepare yourself in prayer to come to joyful worship prayerful worship. The next thing we see is thankful worship. So thankless worship grieves or quenches the spirit of God. We see in verse 18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So again, if he's talking about the body gathered together for worship, then what he's saying is your gathering should be filled with thankfulness. And when it's not, when it's thankless worship, then you are uh, quenching the spirit's work through you the most important thing that we have to be thankful for, right? There's, there's a gratitude that we express in worship at, in, a, in a variety of ways, but the most important thing that we have to be thankful for is what, church? It's the cross of Jesus. And we point to it again and again. So the question that comes to us is, do we get weary of giving thanks for the cross? Does it grow old to us? Like, you've been around here a while. You, you've kind of recognized that we talk about the cross every week. We come back to it every week because it is central to our lives essential to everything that we are and do. And so we come back to the cross because it's the saving power of Christ. We are not ashamed of it. We delight in it. And the question is, look, if, if you want the Spirit to move through, we come often thinking, I want the future work of the Spirit. Whatever he's gonna do to lead me forward, I want that, but we come with a thankless heart for the things he has done in the past. And if you have a thankless heart, a heart not filled with gratitude for what he's done primarily first and foremost through the cross of Jesus, you cannot expect that the Spirit will move through you in power into the future. Do you follow that? That's a disjointed way to think and live within the Spirit's work. The Spirit calls us to give thanks. And friends, hear me. I know that what some of you are going through is really hard. I'm not diminishing that in any way, but whatever you are going through is not as big, is not as powerful as the cross of Jesus. It is not a reason to not give thanks for the cross. No matter what you endure in this day, right now, no matter how difficult, the cross is still better than how bad that thing is. 
It has purchased you and redeemed you and given you life. And so we have to learn to cultivate a grateful heart in worship as we come. And we do that by looking to the cross again and again and saying thank you, thank you, thank you. And we let our heart be filled with faith towards the future and the work of the Spirit. The last thing that we see that quenches the Spirit is resistance to God's revelation, resistance to God's revelation in worship. So he says, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Now there specifically, Paul is talking about, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, he's talking about the Spirit spontaneously bringing to mind something. He says, don't, don't quench that, don't stop that from happening, welcome it, and then test it according to the word of God. So what is central to the church when she gathers, when we gather here, what is central for us is receiving God's revelation first through his written word, and then secondly, through anything the Spirit would reveal as we gather. And that coming with a sense of expectation that we are going to receive that is a big part of what causes the Spirit's power to move among us. That we expect him to reveal truth to us, to teach us, instruct us, convict us, and that we come with a heart's attitude I'm ready to receive what you want to teach through your word and through the revelation of your Spirit First through your word, secondarily through the ministry of the Spirit among us, I'm ready to receive that and I expect to receive it. Not I just expect to come and sit in a chair for an hour. I expect to receive it. The biggest indicator of whether or not you are actually prepared to receive or whether you are resisting the revelation of God's word is the plan you have in place for how you will apply that word for the rest of the week. If there is no plan to apply what you learn here then you are resisting the Spirit's work. Now, you may not feel like you are, but if you have no plan for application, if you have no way by which you say, I'm gonna move forward in whatever God shows and whatever he gives, then you are resisting the Spirit's work because he doesn't want you to come just hear it, he wants you to apply it, which is why we do sermon-based life groups. We're trying to set you up to succeed there. We want you to be in a life group and we want you to be in one that's sermon-based, not because we think it's better than some book or whatever. It's because we want you to not just study the word with us. We want you to apply it together and and walk it out together. That's why we do sermon-based life groups is towards that end. And so that's part of the plan of going, oh, I know personally every Wednesday I'm gonna take whatever we talked about on Sunday and I'm gonna have to talk about how are we applying that and I'm gonna be held accountable to applying that And I'm gonna have to wrestle through what it means to apply that with this group of people in my life group. That's deeply important. It's a a thing in place in my life to guarantee, or I guess it can't guarantee, but it can help me and move me in the direction, right? It's a structure that's there so that when we gather, I'm not quenching the spirit because I have a plan to apply the scripture's truth to my life. Now, close with this. It's very easy to think individualistically about this, but here's what I want you to understand. What we've just said is if I'm joyless in worship, if I'm thankless in worship, right? If I'm, if I'm these four things that we just listed, if I'm resisting the word of God, then that means I'm not just quenching the Spirit's work in my own life, I'm quenching the Spirit's work in my church when we gather. Now that's a sobering thought. Because you're impacting, for better or worse, every Sunday when you come here, you are impacting our experience of the Spirit's movement, and so am I, for better or for worse. Depending on my preparedness, my prayerfulness, my joyfulness, all those things impact 
my church's experience of the Spirit's empowering, leading, revealing work. And that's meant to challenge us. The scriptures mean to challenge us with that so that we wouldn't just say, well, it doesn't matter, I'm only impacting me. You're never just impacting you. And and hear me, church, if you come every week and you sit quietly and talk to no one and you have no relationships here and you just kind of take it and you're thinking, I'm really not impacting anybody. In the spirit, you are impacting us. We all have an impact on one another as we gather and we want to go back to my kind of you know, rough analogy here. We want the two marshmallow experience of the spirit, not the one. All right, we're gonna worship together. We talk about joyful worship. We're gonna worship now. We're gonna sing a song to close our time. But let's pray together as we prepare to do that. Lord Jesus, we offer you our hearts. We want, Holy Spirit, you to move through us. We want to experience your work. The work you've promised us in your word, that it's yours to do. And so we want, we want more of it. And we pray that you'd show us how to not grieve you or quench that work. And we, we confess, we need your help. We, we're not strong enough on our own to do that or bring it about. And so we pray that you would come and, and do it. And now receive praise from us. Receive praise from our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.